and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Kamau, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird together. Joseph, my friend, how are you doing? I am well. You know, I, it's middle of the summer. I went out of town to Greenville, South Carolina a couple weekends ago. Had a great right. time. I think of it as like there's there's Austin, Texas is that cool, funky, weird city. And then Asheville, North Carolina is kind of that next tier that's kind of Austin light. And Greenville is kind of a, a step, kind of that next tier of smaller, but kind of up and coming. It's got some cool restaurants and shops. Went saw Shrek the musical at their local play, which <laughs> which was fun. You know, it was a local production. Sure. Well done. So. You know, I'm enjoying the summer or having, you know, had a good vacation and, uh, you know, kind of getting ready for the semester. So, Brent, how are you, sir? I'm good. I Generally speaking, I had a great day. My wife took me for lunch at a restaurant neither or I, that I hadn't been to yet. I had a halloumi fries, which I, I, I'm sad to say I'd never had halloumi before. It, it's, uh, for those of you who don't know, I was, I was like coming to this. It's a kind of cheese. So, basically, these are like fancy matzo sticks. Uh, but they were very fancy and they were very good. And this, this helped ease the sting somewhat because I, I made a bit of an ass of myself, Joseph, which I'm sure will shock you. <laughs> I went to go see the film Asteroid City the other night, which I, I really loved. And on the way home, I was, it was, you know, after midnight, the streets were empty. So I was just talking to myself. And it, in that way that you do when you don't think you're being observed, you know, you get a little bit into it. You start making facial expressions. You start moving your hands a little bit because you're doing both sides of the conversation. And then I realized there was a young woman running towards me, presumably to catch a bus. And she had very clearly seen me do this. And so instead of just rolling with it and owning it, I tried to pretend like, oh, I'm I'm looking at my phone. And she had this grin as she ran past me because we both realized I was not <laughs> looking at my phone. I was she just caught me talking to myself like an idiot. So that was that was humbling. And the cheese fries, they helped ease the pain somewhat. Nice, nice. Well, hey, real quick, let's say hey, we've got Rin as always hanging out with us. Good evening, dear sirs. Hey, we Rin. Appreciate you. And we've got Derek as well. Evening, gentlemen. Thank you Evening, both for hanging out with us uh, during our Weird Together live stream. So what we got going today, Bren? Well, Joseph, on this episode, we are talking about the latest film from director Ted Gagan, Brooklyn 45. And Brooklyn 45 is set in 1945, stars Larry Fessenden, Jeremy Holt, Anne Ramsey, Ron Raines, Ezra Buzzington, and Christina Kleb, or Kleb, and it's about a lot of things. It's about grief. It's about war. But in the, in the broad strokes, it's about a seance that goes very wrong and about a party that I think it's a party we've all been to. If you're the character of Bob, who is the, the date, everyone else is, knew each other and worked together during the war on the allied side. Bob is a government clerk. And uh, if you've ever been to a party with, with your respective other, your, your partner, your significant other, who uh, work somewhere and, and they're with their work friends and you don't know a single goddamn thing about what's going on. Uh, that is very much the vibe of Brooklyn 45. And of course, there's a lot to talk about with this movie, be, given the subject matter and some stuff that we we learned afterwards. But before we talk about the film itself, Joseph, you never go into the movies alone. You bring every other film, your what's going on in your day, every other experience with you. And so that's why before we talk about any film on the show, we have to take apart the baggage. All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have going into Brooklyn 45? You know, I didn't have much. I, I wasn't familiar with the filmmaker. I hadn't, you know, done any reading about the film ahead of time. I kind of went into it with a blank slate. The only thing I really had uh, was a fear that ended up being uh, nothing to worry about. When I saw the name, I, I, I worried, is this going to be some sort of spoof on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? You know, just, <laughs> which, you know, if nothing else, this speaks to the importance about, of thinking about the title because that's the first impression people get. Clearly, unless there's something I'm missing, it was in no way derivative of or uh, lampooning or in any way connected to the Andy Samberg comedy. But the name certainly has a certain kind of structure to it that gave me that thought initially. Yeah. So I, uh, interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. I didn't really have any baggage going in myself. I had not seen any of Ted Gagan's other films. Uh, I watched Mohawk this morning. Uh, so I'd have a point of reference, which was his previous film, if I'm not mistaken. 
And I, I'd heard his name pop up on the Movie Crypt podcast, which I've listened, I used to listen to quite a bit, but I'm not really familiar with his work. I came to the film uh, because I read, as with a lot of films we talk about on here, some positive reviews. And the one I read was Sheila O'Malley's review on the RogerEbert.com. She spoke very highly of it. And also, I really dug the poster for it. And I, I don't know who created the, the poster, but it's a very old school design. And the special effects that I saw in the preview image on the Roger Ebert review, that looked very Ghostbusters, uh, yeah. which I thought was cool. And later I learned that was, that was intentional. They, they did a lot of um, in-camera practical effects. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't have much going in either. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, aside from knowing Larry Fassenden was in it, I'm a big fan of, of his work, uh, especially as an actor. As, as something Egan said is that, uh, and I, I think I'm pronouncing your name right, Ted, if, I, if I'm wrong, I apologize. I hope you got better things to do than watch this. But if you do, and I'm getting your name wrong, let me know. But um, he said that Fessenden is a great actor who doesn't get enough really meaty roles to uh, flex in. And so he wanted to write something for him that was uh, a much more substantial role. And as we'll talk about in the Toctagon, it, it really worked out because I thought, I thought Fessenden was great in this. All right, so... We've broken down the baggage, and as you and I both know, there's only one place men such as us can talk about these kinds of things, and that's a Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. I've, lim I've limbered up. I've, my ego has recovered from the beating it took on the last episode when uh, you reminded me of my place in the social packing order. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> dishwasher go whoosh dishwasher go whoosh and if, if you want to know what the hell we're talking about listen to the previous episode of this show over on you can either watch it on youtube or uh it's on our rss feed to search for weird together wherever you get your podcasts that episode was influencer took me a sec there joseph i make mm -hmm. a lot of podcasts and that one kind of just that slipped out of my head great episode just the name completely went out of my head regardless what did you think of brooklyn 45 well, in general, I really enjoyed the film. You've made a reference to this. The, act, the acting was fantastic. Um, I yeah. thought visually it was stylized in a very cool way. There's some things I really liked that they did in the film that we'll talk about in a little bit. But overall, I thought it was one of the better films that we have reviewed for the show. Yeah, we're on a real, a real hot streak because we, we have yeah. had a couple lately that have been really, really great. I, I love that this felt... I mean, it was intentionally old school in that, you know, they had the the plate uh, credits at the beginning and the end. Of course, the beginning and the end are done in uh, Academy, uh, I think it's Academy ratio, the sort of the- 4-3. Uh, yeah, that's it. So obviously intentionally old style, but also old school in that it gave really talented character actors mm -hmm. a chance to stretch their legs and to really dig into some some meaty dramatic stuff that again, I, I feel like- may they may it, it's rare to see this like like one of the criticisms i read above of the film online was that all oh, these actors are too old for these mm -hmm. roles which is it, i think is so reflective of how we normally cast movies there's zach efron as a five-star general you know i mean right? no shade to, <laughs> no shade to zach efron but we cast everything so fucking young mm -hmm. and in this you've got people who are more appropriately aged and it it really felt lived in mm -hmm. for that reason and, and we'll, we'll talk more specifically about individual performances, but aside from Larry Fessenden, I really wanted to point out Jeremy Holm, mm. who I just thought was brilliant. He played Archie. Yeah. And that guy, I don't have a screen grab, unfortunately, uh, but that guy has the perfect face for a film set in the forties. Like it, there's something about him and that, that sort of uh, Clark Gable mustache thing he's got going on. He looks period perfect. I've actually seen him in other movies, uh, specifically uh, in Jen Wexler's The Ranger, which is a really underrated slasher. But I thought, who the fuck is that guy? Because he looks like he stepped out of a mm -hmm. uh, 1940s film. And uh, yeah, so I, I particularly appreciated that. Yeah, I, I knew him from uh, House of Cards. Um, he was, he had a- Oh, okay. Uh, there's a number of things uh, that we'll, uh, that you kind of alluded to. And I want to go back to the the aspect ratio. Because I really liked the way that the film manipulated aspect ratios and black and white versus color. I think I probably watched the same interview with the director you did where he talked about that. You know, so, you know, it opens up in black and white and that 4-3 aspect ratio, right? The old television and old film aspect ratio, which is narrower than we've all become accustomed to. And then it switches to color. 
And then when they enter the house and they're putting up their coats, it slowly just stretches to the 21-9 aspect ratio that we're used to in films today. And at the end of the film, it kind of does that all in reverse, right? You know, it goes back to the 4-3. And he talked about why he did that. He wanted it to look like the old-timey film, so to speak, and he wanted the glass plate credits and um, that it needed to be in that 4-3 ratio to look right. And and it really was a nice effect. And the reasons he did it made sense. But I think there was another effect that it had that he didn't talk about. And I don't know if this was something that was intentional for him, but for me, I thought this was really a neat effect it had sort of psychologically. It's like when you start the film and it's in the 4-3 aspect ratio and it's in black and white, it feels like you're in, you're in your living room or in your, wherever you're watching as an outsider in the present watching this film from the 40s or 50s, right? This old film. And you're watching it as an outside observer. But when it turns to bl- from black and white to color and then the aspect ratio stretches, it feels like you're being dropped into the room, into the presence, like as though it's, you're a time traveler, right? That, that you go from watching this as someone who's watching a Turner classic movies to you've somehow been transported into it is now a present experience because you're viewing it in color and the aspect ratios that we are accustomed to. So something about the familiarity. And to me, it feels like it pulls you into the film in a really interesting way. And then in reverse, it kind of helps you out to exit the film. And then you're watching the the credits on your television in your living room on Turner Classic Movies again. Even if that wasn't his intent, I thought that just as a viewer experience was a really kind of neat way to watch this film based on those things that were manipulated. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And something else that occurred to me is you could liken it almost as a metaphor for memory mm-hmm. because when we're looking back on the past, you know, our brains naturally are wired to forget the bad stuff. That's why people romanticize the past so much. Oh, mm-hmm. things are so much better when I was a kid that they weren't, they categorically were not. The past was garbage. Uh, aside from being able to, you know, afford groceries, which, Hey, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, you know, a lot of the past was shit. Yeah. Uh, and this is actually something Gigan has even talked about in interviews saying that, you know, one of the reasons he set the film when he did is he wants to highlight the fact that, you know, the post-war era wasn't great. Rin says, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid had an aspect ratio and a black and white to color change in one of the early scenes. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I still have never seen that. Me neither. But um, yeah, so I think that it sort of serves as a great visual metaphor. You know, when we're in the past, when we're in the moment where, you know, you're, you experience it and you have the fullness of, of that experience. But when you're looking back on it, you get that. That again, everything's kind of blinkered and you, you're just, you focus on the important stuff, the, the stuff that's, although by the end of the film, there's not a lot of good stuff. I mean, by the end of the film, a lot of ghosts are, are uh, some of them are laid to rest. Skeletons are dug out of closets. You know, the relationships are irrevocably changed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I've talked about this before that we always, you know, I shouldn't say always, we often look back on the past with kind of more um, favorable views because also as we get older, when we were younger, we felt better usually. <laughs> you know, our bodies hurt less. We weren't being crushed by the pressures and responsibilities of the world when we were kids. Now, some people's childhood are very traumatic, so I don't want to make light of that. You know, not, not everyone has that. But generally speaking, though, there is a tendency to view the past as, as, more, as better than it was at an individual. I know sociologically, there's a whole issue of social class and race and and differential experiences of the past and that you know the past was better for people who look like me than people who don't look like me in in the in North America in particular and that's one kind of kind of macro level aspect of it but even individually as our health and our bodies kind of break down you know we look back on the past of the time where we felt more vital so yeah, absolutely. I want to another thing that I want to kind of mention here that Derek brought this up, and this was kind of something that I had in my notes. He said it very much had the feel of a stage play. And again, we probably watched the same interview. The director described it as a real-time chamber drum. I watched the interview after watching the film, and before ever seeing that, I also had kind of my notes that it felt like a play, right? Uh, and clearly very that was so. intentional, right? You know, it's 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 a one-room set aside from the opening and closing, right? And the set feels like a play in terms of the color and how it's staged in a good way. Like it looks like a really 
you know, a, a, a stage production set that was put together with a lot of attention to detail and choosing color palettes and items and artifacts to give a certain feeling. It's a little, it's a little surreal. It's a little, you know, exaggerated reality, but it's really nicely done in terms of the set. The acting and dialogue where, you know, it just felt like you kind of went around the room from one little dyad to another dyad, right? And conversations. And even the end credits, you know, listing the cast as the players, right? So in general, it really did feel like a kind of a play brought to this, to, you know, the big screen, so to speak. Yeah. And I've read in interviews with uh, Christina, again, I think it's Klebe that they had uh, a fair amount of rehearsal time, which is not common for, for film at this level anymore. From what I understand, it's not uncommon for actors to basically turn up on, on the day they have to shoot. And that's the first time meeting the rest of the cast. You know, I've, I've heard it on, again, on podcasts, uh, stories of actors doing their auditions over zoom, getting to wherever it is they're shooting and just go, there's no time to find a rhythm. There's no time. You're supposed to be lifelong friends. You're just meeting now. And so they have the, the advantage of um, rehearsal and it, it shows again, there's a, a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of, of mood. There's a sense that these people know each other. What I said about the character of uh, Marla, who is during the war, she was an interrogator. She was essentially a, a torturer mm-hmm. and she turns up with Bob and Bob is a government clerk. He has no experience of war and they really effectively show that feeling. I was talking about where you walk into a party where you don't know anyone. And you don't get any of the inside jokes. Mm-hmm. And again, that's only something you can do if you can establish the group dynamic. So yeah, again, I, I think using character actors allows you to do that. Using people who are, uh, I think actually the actor who plays Bob, uh, Ron Raines, I think he is a stage veteran. And I assume the others have probably done stage as well. So it, the quality of the script and the quality of uh, of the actors, uh, I think allows for that kind of, that shorthand. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think the director also said that when they filmed it, they kind of went chronologically in the story. They kind of filmed it through instead of jumping around. Oh, okay. I missed that. So, uh, so, you know, for the actors, it probably felt very much like a play, right? You know, performing it kind of straight through. So I think that, that also, I, you know, in the interview, he talked about how that allowed you know, instead of dropping in at a scene an hour and a half in and having to, re- you know, remember how do I feel at this point in the experience, you've been working your way through the story and building yourself up to where your character is at, at that point in the evening and how they're feeling. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the, the cast was, was outstanding. And I think the, 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 real, the acting and the quality of the acting is first and foremost attributable to their talents. But I think that the way the film was done in terms of production, I think also gave, made it a lot easier for them or enabled them, you know, to, to really do their best uh, for some of those reasons. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, Anne Ramsey, uh, who played Marlette uh, Sheridan, she was, to me, the, her performance stood out. I, I, just, I mean, they were oh, great absolutely. performances across the board, but she was, she was fantastic in that role. And for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, she is also in Taking of Deborah Logan. Mm. Yeah, that's it. The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is, I think, a film that at the time didn't really get the attention it deserved, but has grown a cult following in the years since its release. And it's a very good horror film. And she she's also excellent in that. And I, I agree. She's brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. especially later, you know, when she we discover that Hawk, uh, played by Larry Fessenden, has called his friends to the, to his house because his wife last year committed suicide and he wants to have a seance because he cannot handle the notion that she is gone. He wants them to participate in this with him. And later again, folks, we spoil the shit out of these movies, although you should still watch them. Um, Actually, there's a great, there's a great podcast. It's not made anymore, but I think the archives are still online. It's called switchblade sisters. It was produced by the writer, um, April Wolf, I think is her name. Very, I, I feel bad. I, I'm not totally sure on her name. She's very funny, and her podcast was exceptional. Uh, Switchblade Sisters. But one of the things she said is, it's not what how can it, it basically the spoilers don't matter because it's not what happens in a film; it's the experience that matters. Mm, yeah. So like this, this should not ruin your experience of the film, and, and I agree. So we're gonna spoil the shit out of this, but you know, still watch it. <laughs> but at the end of the first act, Hawk kills himself, and you find out that 
his wife killed herself because she thought the Germans living down the street were spies. No one would listen to her, so she killed herself. And uh, you find out that Hawk actually has her tied up in the closet, the German girl who that his wife thought was a spy. And uh, I've completely lost track why I'm telling this, Joseph. I'll be honest with you. My, my, I, I was distracted uh, by Anne Ramsey and, and what a great actor she is. You talk right, right, right. Him. Okay. Yeah. So later she decides to the she's forced by by Paul that her uh, the, one of their friends that sort of the the military man of the film. She's forced by him to torture Hildy, the German girl, to see if she is in fact a Nazi. And it's her resignation in that scene, but her also toughness. Like you, you just you see the person she was. You see the torturer that she was before this interrogator that she, that she was before. And she just slips into it so effortlessly. It was really cool to watch. Rin saying Anne Ramsey's the mom and throw yeah, the two actors with similar names. Uh, this Anne Ramsey is R A M S A Y in the Brooklyn 45. Uh, yeah. Anne Ramsey is also from Goonies. Oh, of course. Yeah. Mama Fratelli. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, but she was also in mad about you as she was also in a league of their own. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. Total aside. I'm not convinced that Hildy was innocent. So that's interesting because they never come down on it in the film. The actress has said in interviews, she believes that Hildy was not a Nazi. Here's my two pieces. Okay. When the ghost comes out and it's like having her reenacting the knife with like Hildy having Hildy cut her arm, her wrist. Maybe the ghost of his wife was doing that just to set her up and get her killed because she was committed to this idea. But part of me wonders if that's really what happened. And repeatedly when Hildy was asked, have you ever been part of it? You know, and she always was kind of slow to answer that. So I don't know. It just, I mean, listen, I know it's, it's, it's not nearly as important as the other themes that are more salient in this film. But as an aside, I don't know. No, that's fair. There was a moment where even I myself thought that because when she's asked, asked the name of her daughters under interrogation, she hesitates a moment. And, uh, but you know, I, I thought about it. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating about the film, and again, I don't know what Ted Gigan's experience with this subject is, but one of the things, of course, I, my primary, my day job is in fact, is making the ghost story guys. And we, we talk about paranormal shit all the time. Mm-hmm. And regardless of whether you, where you fall on that continual belief, whether you think it's all who or who you're not, one of the constants in the lore, uh, sorry, your position on it is irrelevant is what I'm saying. The, the lore is what's important to this. And in the lore, it's said that, um, it doesn't matter what they say they are. If you are contacting something else, there's no guarantee it's going to be the people you want it to be. We have this notion yeah, that that's true. you reach out and it, it's like ordering a burger at McDonald's. You're going to get exactly what you asked for. But in actual fact, you know, the lore suggests that it can be anything and they're going to tell you things, but yeah. they're not going to tell you the truth. And I thought that basically if we're seeing Susie, if we're really seeing Hawk's wife, we're seeing the fact that this woman has never moved on. Mm-hmm. has, you know, because we, again, one of the notions of mainstream paranormal lore that I'm not crazy about is that once you die, everything's happy and you, you're, you're ethereal and you're, if there's any parity between the afterlife and the real life, I think it's that people are probably still shitty. They are, that the, the people can still hang on to things, you know, like it's your choice whether or not you're going to let things go. And so I, I didn't necessarily, and also the, the, there was so much sinister shit happening. You know, especially when later when Hawk's corpse animates and starts yeah. smashing its head into the table in, in truly gruesome fashion, which some with some great effects work, I might add. I really felt like this is this is an indication that not all is as it seems because Hawk was upset, but for him to mutilate himself that way, that doesn't make sense based on what we know of the person. This seems like something that has been given entry into our world and just delights in turning us against each other. Yeah, aside, like I just remember in during the seance, the the phrase that, and I I put this in my notes because it stood out to me that Hawk used saying when he was inviting the spirits was force your way into our world with all of your might. Yeah, that seemed like a bad idea. That's <laughs> so. it. Again, if 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 you believe that that shit works, and that, that there's a lot of shit out there to be calling, mm-hmm. and so you're who knows what's going to be picking up the phone. 
I will say um, I did enjoy the references and uh, influence from the spiritualism movement. About 11 minutes in, there was sort of a, a, an indirect reference to the Society for Psychical Research. You know, they referenced that there was a, a society in England, right, that studies this stuff, which so it's, you know, the SPR. The general reference and attitudes towards parlor tricks, I think, was, was felt accurate, you know, because, you know, people who haven't aren't familiar with this or haven't read about this, the whole spiritualism movement, a lot of the people who rejected that, and I, you know, I, I think there's good reasons to be cynical and criti- or critical about it. Skeptical is probably the right word. Uh, people who were skeptical about that really kind of pointed towards all the kind of the wrapping on the doors and all the kind of the cheap parlor tricks. So it felt like the attitudes of the characters about that seance felt time appropriate. Yeah, like people would have had that sort of disposition towards seances and, uh, uh, you know, kind of coming out being maybe decades after the spiritualism movement kind of had waned some. And, you know, the whole ectoplasm thing about 25 minutes in, you know, was kind of an interesting reference. So I, I appreciated all those connections to that without spelling it out too, too directly. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, too, that the drama in the film was human. Mm-hmm. That's something I think that some uh, paranormally themed films get wrong is they think all of the the focus should be on the paranormal thing. When I think the human element is is the most important thing, and honestly, I, I feel you know again, I make my living telling ghost stories, and I still think that's that's the most important thing. I was invited to talk at a high school a few years back, uh, just before the pandemic, and you know, obviously I talked about being a writer. I talked about you know it, the podcast wasn't as popular then as it is now, but I still talked about podcasting. But my takeaway, and I think this is one of the reasons that you know some folks don't take to my show, is that I, I say that whether anything or whether or not anything happens after you die is kind of irrelevant. Because what matters is is here and what matters is people and what matters is the way you live your life. So, I mean, sure, ghost stories are cool, but it doesn't really affect you most of the time. You should just live your life thinking about what's here and what's now. What come, li- Live your life like there's nothing afterwards, which does not mean be crazy because I know some really religious people think, oh, if there's no God, you're going to be an asshole, which I think says more about them than they realize. But no, you live your life on the basis of what's here. And I think if you're writing good horror the characters are what matter. I just saw The Flash, which I, I liked more than a lot of people. And the director, Andy Muschietti, the first film of his I saw was Mama. And it was terrifying because it worked on an emotional level as well as a horror level. And again, that's that's why I think Brooklyn 45 works the way it does, because you care about the relationships, you feel the relationships, and the focus is on the human drama. Because ultimately, it's humans who do the murdering. I mean, the yeah. ghosts can suggest and lie and whatever, but I mean... We who knows what that they're telling the truth, you yeah. know what they're telling you is going to be. You're going to receive it based on what you want to hear. No, I think that's a great and important point, and I want to kind of use that as a way to segue into what I think were some of the relational and the human parts of this film that were, to me, more important and more, in some ways, more interesting than really than the paranormal side of things in the film. For me, there were four kind of major themes that stood out. I'll just kind of throw them out there, and then we can kind of talk about them a bit. The first one was sort of this nationalism and xenophobia, and the history is well documented how we've treated Japanese persons in the internments and all, all that, and and so on and so forth. Right? There certainly was some issue, some kind of topics related to sexuality and toxic toxic masculinity, and where things were with the LGBTQ community at that point in history, grief and PTSD, obviously, and and a topic I will all want to get into is kind of this complicated nature of evil, right? Kind of war and obedience to authority. So maybe the first one I want to talk about is that the whole kind of sexuality and toxic masculinity thing, because what was really interesting was the relationship between, you know, Major Archibald and uh, Major uh, DeFranco, right? Because like there was sort of this ribbing back and forth about, you know, uh, Archibald's uh, kind of, you know, uh, kind of closeted sort of, you know, sexuality, you know, which at that time, historically, even more so, you had to be careful about that. And there was some interesting kind of dynamics there. And I, I, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. They made reference to him being homosexual. You know, Paul, I think, was was the um, the commanding officer. 
mm-hmm. uh, or the person above him. And, and he was, he, he made what seemed to be pretty callous jokes, but also seemed to, to leave it there. And it was like just an acknowledged thing between them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in a way it's, it's sort of that thing where if you, I, and I've, I've seen this in, in personal relationships where if you are, if you are gay, you, in, in a way you have to roll with the punch. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, you, a lot of guys I know who, who, who were gay or who are gay, not were gay, they are gay. You know, they're cool with it. They'll roll with the jokes, but at the same time, they shouldn't have to, you know, right. they become really good at rolling with the jokes. But it, when you actually step back from it, you realize, yeah, it's hard when the room is kind of laughing. And you have to be mm-hmm. cool with it. Otherwise, you're going to be the, you know, the bummer. You're going to be that guy. And, and that sucks because that's not something you should have to do. But I've definitely seen that. And that felt like what was happening here. Because the other thing I noticed is as soon as things went south mm-hmm. and he wanted to, Archie was no longer being the person that Paul needed him to be, he immediately went to the homophobic slurs. It was no right. longer because they use the word fruit. And, and obviously that was a derogatory term for a person who was, who was gay and Archie kind of rolls with it and it's done in a joking way. But yeah, when, when the chips are down and Paul's mad, it's not a joke anymore. Right. And if the only difference between the, what you say to someone being a joke and being a slur is the mood in which you say it, then it was always a slur. Right. And so again, I think, yeah, ultimately the attitudes are revealed that he's not okay with this. You know, some people, Marla doesn't care. Marla doesn't care, but Paul cares deeply. And a part of that, obviously he's presented as a very masculine character. Yeah. Um, Ezra Buzzington played, who plays Paul also played a similar role in Mohawk. He was the chief villain there. And it was interesting because his character in Mohawk was perhaps vastly more evil than Paul was, but he actually got to have a more human moment. I felt in Mohawk, there's this moment where his son is killed in front of him. And he's washing his son's blood off himself. And he finds a piece of his son's hair with some gore attached to it. And he has this incredibly tender moment of heartbreak, but it's very quick, but very, very, you know, very much felt. And I kind of felt in this, he was a little bit more of a boilerplate villain. Like there, there were almost times where I thought, okay, the movie should probably be over, but Paul won't let them out of the room just because no, the movie's not over yet. No, that makes sense. But yeah, I definitely felt like that they were okay with it until they weren't okay with it when it ceased to be convenient for them. Yeah. Like the first time that sort of conversation kind of goes in a direction, it was like this banter. They kind of create this falsely tense moment. And he's saying these, these slurs, uh, you know, Paul's saying these slurs and Archie's kind of acting kind of serious about it. And then he just breaks the tension and it's like, Oh, they've done this dance before. Right. And it, and it's, it's not something that someone should have to endure or you shouldn't have to have that kind of reaction, obviously. But in that time, you know, it was, it was a different time. And that's kind of, you know, again, it's, it's not, there's a lot of problems still in terms of how those populations are treated. Uh, but he kind of had to do that. But like you say, when shit got real, you know, it was no longer just banter. You know, the thing I really want to talk about with this in particular was that the, the, the whole thing about the complicated nature of evil. Because one of the things that's revealed is, you know, uh, Archie's character is going to be sort of on trial for war crimes. And, you know, they, they don't really talk about what it is initially, but then they later in the film reveal what happened and that under direction, under the orders that were kind of sent down through the chain of command that included uh, Paul and, uh, and, and uh, Hawk. Um, he threw grenades into a, a, a building with a bunch of children basically and killed them. And it's, you know, it's obviously it's horrific. And there's, there's a lot of conversation in the film about, is he evil? And he's even wrestling with that. And ironically, there's a point where, you know, the the only person who's saying he's not evil is Hildy, the woman who would maybe have all the reason to hate him the most, which which was certainly interesting. But they talk about this conversation about evil. And for me, it was it reminded me of some some famous studies, uh, experiments that have been done that kind of explored this. And, you know, you may be familiar with this, you may not be. But Stanley Milgram's experiments, he was a psychologist who, in I believe is the early 1960s, did some experiments in obedience and 
what they did is they had people come into a lab uh, and they had one person who was the participant and a second person who was actually part of the study acting, but the participant didn't realize that the person was in league. And one person would be set up as a teacher, the other as a learner, so to speak, and they had to answer certain questions, matching words. And the person who was actually the not in the know, the participant, thought that they were administering shocks to the other person if they got them wrong. In The shocks would be an increasing magnitude and to a point that could potentially be deadly. Now, the whole thing about this is the person who actually was on the other side was, again, was, was part of the study, was not actually being shocked. But as they hit the switch to administer what they thought was a shock, the per, they had recordings of the person reacting. And the whole point of this was to, to see if a person under a direction of authority of an authority figure would do horrible things. And, you know, the people who were part of the study were led to believe that they were just doing a thing about a study about psychological study about learning. And the results were about two thirds of people continued administering shocks all the way to the highest level when they were told to keep doing that. Right. When they were told, no, we need you to continue to do this. We will be responsible for it. Yeah. Rin saying that study was off. So awful. So many people following orders. And listen, I, I teach sociology. I teach research methods. And I will tell you in academic circles, this study is cited more often about the ethics of the study than the actual findings. Like whether it's, I mean, certainly what it tells us about people is scary. When you teach research methods, you often talk about how a study like that would not get approved by an institutional review board today. You couldn't do a study like that today. But Milgram was inspired by like, well, when you look at kind of what had happened in Nazi Germany, were all the people who were part of that truly evil to the core or structurally, contextually, do people in certain contexts do horrible things, right? And it's a complicated topic and answer, but certainly this film reminded me. That. And then there's one other study I'll mention, you know, the, the Stanford prison experiment. You've probably heard of that. Philip Zimbardo in 1971. Uh, had a number of students who were playing either guard, prison guards or prisoners. It was supposed to be a two-week study. They ended it after six days because the behavior and the treatment was getting worse and worse and people were internalizing it. And they call it, they talk about the power of the situation. Now it doesn't hurt that, uh, or it doesn't help that, you know, he looks a little bit like Ming the Merciless, Philip Zimbardo does. Uh, <laughs> but what all these studies kind of talk about and what, what to me kind of I take away from it is there is a complicated question of, and of conversation about evil. Like there's a socially desirable thing where we're supposed to just say some, you know, things that are reprehensible to us. Oh, well, everyone involved must be evil. Right. And if you don't say that, then you must be a shit person. But it's complicated. Because, and it, this is not to take the responsibility off people, but like when people are on structures where they have authority structures that tell them to do things and they're expected to fill a role and everything around them is in concert with that and reinforces that there are structural incentives where there are evil structures that make people who are complicated humans do evil things. And so I, this is an underlying theme that the film kind of touches on. And I just, to me, it's a fascinating subject that they kind of broached in the film. So what are your thoughts on all that, Brent? Well, no, you're, you're right. I mean, I am, um, I was raised Catholic. It didn't mm -hmm. take obviously, but I, I was raised Catholic. And so I very much have this, uh, this idea of absolution in my head, you know, uh, of what it takes to be absolved of your sins, of the things you have done wrong. And I, I was thinking about this in, in, re in relation to the film. Uh, I used to play softball with this guy. He was a soldier. He was a former British soldier. He had fought in Afghanistan. He'd done, at least one, two, or possibly two. And I don't know that he killed people, but I, I'm guessing. Um, and he, and certainly I knew he had been present at the site of murders. Uh, and there are some other pretty awful things I'd heard, just things that soldiers do, not exactly violence, but gross things all the same. And it was interesting because he was a lot of fun. He was a fun guy to hang around. He was a fun guy to play ball with. I mean, he was kind of a tool, but he, was, he could be fun. Mm -hmm. And... I thought it was interesting how easily I accepted his presence, despite knowing like this is a combat veteran and regardless of, you know, right or wrong, he has taken, I'm, I'm fairly certain he had taken at least, you know, at least one life, 
but you just, you fold it into that image of a person, right? Because it's, it's not happening in front of you. And what's interesting is what it actually took for me, for me to be put off that guy was not the idea that he had uh, maybe killed someone, but it was actually when I found out he was a racist. Mm. Uh, I found that out later. And that, that was enough to be like, okay, no, we're, we're done here. Uh, and I, I wonder if it's a difference between seeing something happen in front of you and sort of not being present mm-hmm. for the other things, you know, kind of hearing it uh, third party. But anyways, setting that aside, I, I wonder that myself. I wonder, what do you do if you love someone who's done bad things? How do you square that? How do you reconcile that? And I think that's, it's a part of, it's a part of us that we don't question enough because you're right. I think we like to externalize evil. We like to think, well, if someone's a monster, I'll know because that's a monster. I I remember the film Jojo Rabbit caught a lot of shit because there were some Nazis in there who were funny and they were, you know, otherwise likable people aside from the fact they were Nazis. And the film was, was really lambasted for this because they said, well, that's, that's bullshit. You know, Nazis are evil. Well, yeah, but also they were people. Mm Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to identify this because if you think like if, if for me, even that, that soldier, again, I don't know that he'd kill people. I, I have a suspicion, but I don't know. But if he had, I'm chumming around with him playing softball. But if I was one of the Afghani villagers who'd been affected by his violence, they'd look at me and go, what, what are you doing, man? This guy's a monster. And it sort of puts the lie. I used to hang out with this guy and he once told me he was hanging out with some other really sketchy people. And I said, they're kind of dicks, man. He goes, yeah, but they're nice to me. Well, that's a bullshit excuse. They're nice. They're nice to me. You know, and I recognize that's, that's nonsense. We need to recognize people can be more than one thing, but we also then have to weigh those things in the balance and determine how comfortable we are with one or the other. Because, you know, again, like, okay, I I knew a guy, I used to hang out, actually funny enough, I just watched this documentary called Kings of Coke about the West End gang in Montreal. And Montreal in, I think this is the seventies was a haven for bank robbers. The place was just Christmas. They were robbed, banks were getting robbed all over the place. And it reminded me that I used to, when I was working at Radio Shack back in Revelstoke, this guy used to come in and borrow money from me. And he he was the next bank robber. I forgot about it. I, I just remembered. He, his name was Doc. And he had done time in Montreal for being a getaway driver for a bank robbery. And I just, at the time, I didn't think about it because you don't really have as much of a moral sense when you're younger. But as I'm older now, I realize you got to weigh, okay, so he was funny and he was fun. And again, he would come and borrow 10 bucks from me every now and again. But if he did that, then he was also participating in violence. I have to try and figure out which is weighted more to me. But we have to be able to hold those two opposing ideas in our head. Like this person's, they've done evil shit. And okay, so how how much access do I give them? How, how close do I let them in? And I, I think we, we're not at a place where we can do that. Cause I think we have these really simplified ideas like, Oh, they, they've done bad. So they're out. Yeah. Or, you know, but I don't think we, we, we've entertained sort of that, that gray area and like Archie, Archie was a very, you know, going get taken back to the film. He's a very classy guy, very fun guy, very funny guy, but also he killed a bunch of kids. It's tough because like it, it cuts a lot of different ways because on one level, if you humanize a person who has done horrible things, then that becomes a socially undesirable thing. Like, you know, say they say you're someone say you're making excuses for them or how could you, you know, and it, it gets complicated because then you're like, well, where does, you know, where do you draw that line? Right. And we as a society have to make those decisions. And that's, it's part of the reason we have laws and judicial systems and processes to do that. But it, it does become difficult and complex uh, to kind of do that calculus, so to speak. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's definitely an interesting conversation uh, and there's a lot of layers to it for sure. Yeah. I wanted to jump to the xenophobia thing because yeah. obviously the film hinges on the fact that Hildy is, is German and therefore she's immediately worthy of suspicion because she has a German accent. Mm-hmm. But something that came up during an interview with the actress who plays Hildy, again, Christina Klebe, she did some historical research in preparing for the role. And one of the things she was shocked by was the existence of the German American Bund, which of course was a Nazi organization that flourished in wartime America, mm. culminating, you could say, in a, in a rally in Madison Square Garden, I want to say 1939, which was attended by some 20,000 people. Mm. 20,000 Nazi sympathizers in New York City openly celebrating their allegiance to this foreign power, which was mowing its way through Europe. And I guarantee not all 20,000 of those people had German accents. Yeah. 
And something, you know, if you look even at a cursory reading of history following the post-war, following the Second World War, big business didn't really care who was a Nazi and who wasn't. It was all about who was useful. And again, it's the enemy is among you and trying to separate them by, well, they sound like this, they look like this. That's bullshit. Like, obviously, we're in a situation now where we're overrun with goddamn Nazis again. And we're still on the lookout for the other guy. You know, if if uh, if a Muslim guy shoots up a school or shoots up a, a something, well, that's terrorism. But if a, if someone if a, if a European person does it, well, there's a problem with their mental health. We don't we don't even use the word terrorism, and, and it absolutely is terrorism. And I think the the fact that we've not we're just we're losing that history. We're not teaching people the fact that someone who was a secondly a, a, essentially a first generation a second generation immigrant. Christina Klepp didn't know this. This wasn't taught in schools. That that's scary. You no, know, it, it's interesting because we look at history today, right? Contemporarily, we look back and we think we see the evils of history, whether it be what happened with the Nazis, or we look at the complicated history of race in, in the United States and the civil rights movement, and we watch these old grainy films and we're like, we see the people who are the backlash against the civil rights movement. We're like, how could anyone be so? you know, racist and how could they, how could they not support equal rights and how could they not support the civil rights movement? Something that today, you know, we laud as an important counterculture movement that led to social change. Uh, And then you fast forward today and you see contemporary backlashes against what's going on. And, you know, I teach sociology, so that's an area we get into and we look at it and you see I mean, there, you know, there's a whole culture war today of if it's a book that teaches that racism is a thing, there's school districts that want it out of their, their libraries. I mean, this is going on. I find that terrifying. Oh, yeah. Genuinely frightening. There's legislation that has been passed in a lot of states, including the state I reside, that is trying to limit divisive concepts or topics from being taught in schools, which is yeah. basically they don't want you to teach about racism being a thing. And I, we see all the things that are going on and today that are the people who support those things are just justifying them in, in whatever way they, they can or do. And then you look at it as a thoughtful observer. You're like, I see exactly how people were on the wrong side 40, 50 years ago, because there are people on the wrong side today who defiantly deny that they're on the wrong side. Uh, anyway, it's, I know this is getting a little kind of off the rails, but yeah, I mean the the whole kind of nationalism, xenophobia, it just it's kind of a it's kind of always there in one form or another, unfortunately, it seems. And and in the case of the film, to bring it back to Brooklyn 45, because yeah. we're gonna have to wrap it up here, it forces your soul out of shape. Mm-hmm. It bends you into things you were never meant to be. Because the, the xenophobia and the fear in this film originally forced the Marla character to, you know, she was she was a torturer. She tortured people, I'm sure some of whom were innocent. And in this film, it forces her to torture a woman who she believes genuinely to be innocent. And, you know, if this person who has a history of, of torturing the truth out of people believes this person is telling them the truth, then, you know, we, we are sort of, I would say, are, can accept it as face, at face value. So that fear, that xenophobia forced this group of otherwise normal people, in battle scarred, of course, but to torture. And then the one I'll let innocent in the group, Bob, he commits double homicide. Yeah. And discusses even the hardened torturer of the group to the point where she no longer wishes to be touched by him. And again, that's ultimately what these things do. It, it distorts our soul. I, I don't know that I necessarily believe in the soul, but I think the metaphor is useful. It, it forces us into terrifying shapes and horrible shapes and unrecognizable shapes. And it's, uh, again, that, that we're trying to ignore those things because it's easier to do that is genuinely frightening. Yeah. No, I agree. Makes a lot of sense. All right, Joseph, we have to wind it up. We like to keep this thing at about an hour. Of course, if you're listening to the audio version, this might be a little bit shorter. It's because I tend to trim them down. Big thanks to everyone who joined us for the live stream. Uh, Before we do that, though, of course, Joseph, wind up just uh, what you would recommend Brooklyn 45? Yes, absolutely. This is one of the more uh, enjoyable films I think we've watched. Agreed. Yeah, it is streaming on Shudder. It's a Shudder original right now. You can get Shutter for something like five or six bucks a month. I'm sure you can get a, free, a week free if you sign up for the trial. Do not pirate independent films. We see that all the time on this show. Every dollar you spend on independent films is another vote for more independent films. You pirate this shit, no one's going to make it. If you're going to pirate things, which we don't recommend you do, 
pirate things like Marvel. Disney can afford it, although maybe not Warner Brothers so much. They keep making bombs. But uh, yeah, don't pirate independent films. Check out Brooklyn 45 on Shutter. And one film I wanted to give a quick boost to. We won't do the whole sting because we're short on time. Uh, it's a revenge film called The Wrath of Becky. It is a sequel to the, to the film Becky starring Lulu Wilson. If you've seen Becky, you'll know it's a revenge film, but a young woman whose parents are murdered in front of her by neo-Nazis, I guess thematically ties to this film. She goes on a bloody rampage to uh, get revenge. Wrath of Becky follows a similar template and sets up future films, which I generally hope they make because I like Lulu Wilson. I like Becky and I like seeing uh, Nazis get murdered. Joseph, Mm. I'll be honest with you. It makes my heart sing. (laughs) All right, my friend, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at jokemo 13 J-O-K-O-M-O-13, and uh, on YouTube uh, at The Cardinal Rule if you happen to be into NFL football. I do my thing over there. Perfect. I'm Largely the Truth on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky. You can find my other podcast, The Ghost Story Guys, everywhere. Find Podcasts Live or at ghoststoryguys.com. All the music on this show was composed and performed by Elliot Wilder, performing as The Revenants. Find more from Elliot at therevenants1.bandcamp.com or on streaming platforms everywhere, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, which is the Ghost Story Guys house label. Our theme song is, what is it, Joseph? Ah, uh, yeah, it's Rest in Peace <laughs> by The Revenants from the album Music from Big Beige. And again, you'll find that streaming everywhere. You get your tunes. And again, thank you so much for joining us, folks. Again, for those of you who are joining us live, and for those of you who've been finding the show afterwards, again, our numbers are going up week after week, month after month. We were charting in two different charts in Ireland recently, Joseph. I don't know if you saw that in the email. I did see that. Yeah, world domination, uh, but <laughs> not not the kind we've been talking about. Right. The good kind. The good kind. Uh, and yeah, so thank you, Rin. Thank you, Derek. I, again, we really, really appreciate you guys being here. And I don't know what we're doing next time, but we will be back with an audio episode. I guess I don't even know how long after this. I think it'll be out. This will come out a week a week after this airs. And then so three in three weeks, we'll have an audio episode. Then next month's live stream. We'd love to see you there. And until then, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Let me ride.